You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be telling us about this week, Barney? Well, Tara, on January 8th, 2002, pastry chef, drug dealer and Carl Williams henchman, Tommy Ivanovich murdered a total stranger, Ivan Conabare, in a completely unprovoked road rage attack. That's a lot to um, to handle in in a couple of sentences. I know, and there's there's lots more to this story too. He is really it, well connected. Li- well connected. This links back to a lot of stories that I've been telling over the last um, couple of years. Oh, the underbelly kind of stuff about right? the Melbourne underworld. Yes. How about you, Tara? What have you got for us today? I've got a corker. All right. I'll be talking about Sienki Lalamand, a career con man who specialised in identity theft and graduated to murder. This story has everything. Blackmail, Whitney Houston impersonators, pipe bombs and face-altering plastic surgery. Oh, wow. That has got a lot. (laughs) I think we've got an action-packed episode for Christmas Eve. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah. I really want to hear this story about Stinky Funny Man. (laughs) What's his name? Uh, Sienki Lalamand. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you were pretty close. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, gorgeous, generous, witty and sublime patrons. All right, Tara, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. In 1991, Sienki Lalamand, the 21-year-old son of Haitian immigrant parents, was married, unemployed and living in Calumet City, Illinois. The apartment he shared with his pregnant wife was near a forest area which was frequented by men cruising for sex with other men. That's a lot to unpack in the first two paragraphs. Oh, well, that was one paragraph. You should wait until I go into the pages. Ooh. 
On an October morning, after his wife went to work, Sienki decided to take a jog through the woods. Fit, attractive and bisexual, Sienki was date bait and he knew it. Seemingly allergic to an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, Sienki had come up with a pretty vile scheme to make bank. He'd secretly set up a video camera in his lounge room. Now he planned on taking a scantily clad jog through the gay beat on the lookout for a closeted married man to embroil in his conniving plan. Diabolical. A man known only as DT in court documents to protect his identity fit the bill and took the bait. Dirk Tucker. Yeah. Um, I'm just taking double a Double titties. Yeah, no, yours was better. <laughs> as they neared Sienki's apartment, he had DT wait outside for a moment on the pretext that he was making sure his wife wasn't home. He hurriedly turned on the video camera and invited DT inside. The two men engaged in sex every moment of which, unbeknownst to DT, was being captured in glorious VHS. Oh, great format. Oh, look, I, I was a bit of a beta fan, really. No, I wasn't. Never saw any, <laughs> but I heard it existed. I had a, I had a Betamax video You would. You love your technology. I thought it was cool. and It, it probably was it, for a minute, it, for a hot minute. It really wasn't. <laughs> really? Not no. even for a hot minute? No, I chose poorly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, like... Upgraded to VHS, you know, yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, good. Soon after their illicit encounter, Sienki started stalking DT and his family. He went through their rubbish, followed them to work and to church, learning all that he could about them. Now, all the things that he learned went into the letter Sienki set to DT at work, demanding $16,000 for the master of the sex tape he enclosed. 16 grand, that's an odd amount. It is an odd amount. Wouldn't you say 20 or 10 or... Yeah, 15 even. The letter instructed DT to drop the money in a locker at Merrillville's Southlake Mall by the end of November. It told him not to report it to police or he'd drag DT out of the closet and expose his homosexual leanings to everyone in his life. This is really evil stuff, man. It really is. For it's a, a person's decision to come out of For a church-going man and, yeah, I know with the did. wife and kids. Yeah, I mean, mm. you know. Mm. While trying to find out why Sienki is such an unfeeling bastard, I came across this quote from him and it said, I am inspired by the music of Terence Trent Darby. Oh, that's pretty damning, isn't it? It really is. Like, you know, I always knew there was something off about sign your name across my heart. Oh, and wishing well. Mm, Oh, particularly wishing well. When DT didn't meet his demands, Sienki left another letter and tape on DT's doorstep, setting a new deadline of the 4th of December. DT's wife opened it and she watched the tape. It was a bad scene. DT called the FBI. His wife divorced him. DT tried to kill himself, but luckily he didn't succeed. FBI agents arrested Sienki at the Southlake Mall on December 4th at the locker. Wow, he really destroyed that guy's life. Really, really horribly, yes. I mean, you got someone committing suicide. Sienki was just trying to make a quick buck and you just destroy someone's life. Yeah, nice one, champ. Not cool, stinky. Not cool at all. He spent 18 months in federal prison. Now... As is often the case, this is where Sienki learned how to be an even better criminal. 
A guy named Anthony Gamillion, a fellow prison inmate, taught Sienki all about bank fraud, identity fraud, wire transfers and international banks. Ah, villain university. Big time. James Bond fan Sienki thought this all sounded like a glamorous and exciting way to make money, outsmart people and ruin their lives. Well, Stinky, you're misguided. Yeah, he gets off on this kind of thing. Hmm. Soon after he was released in 1994, Sienke met Sherry Payne, a.k.a. Joseph Francis Burkhart, a female impersonator who did a great Whitney Houston impersonation at the Baton Rouge Show Lounge. Oh, my God, she was gorgeous. Really? Oh, it is the greatest love of all. Well, apparently so. Though he initially thought Sherry was a woman, finding out that she was a man did nothing to dampen his attraction. Sherry was also a small-time crook who started helping Sienke out with his criminal schemes. In 1995, Sienke broke the conditions of his bond and went to Indianapolis where he started up a dummy corporation called Leopold Financial. This would be a place where all of his fake identities could say they weren't and have their fake salaries verified for credit purposes. He learned a lot in the pokey. To obtain the personal details he needed to commit his acts of fraud, silver-tongued Sienke used the oldest trick in the book. The art of making cheese? Oh, yeah, no. No? Seduction. Yeah, that does work better. Do I do like fromage? (laughs) Yeah, everyone likes fromage, you cheesy fuck. He said he deliberately seduced women who worked in jobs that could be helpful to him, like large banks, license bureaus and social security offices. He gave them what they wanted, which was a hell of a lot of romance and attention, and they gave him the information he needed for his scams. Oh, he's sly, motherfucker, isn't he? Oh, so sly. He is sly and the family stone if they were all sly. According to police documents, he and Sherry set up a shop in an Indianapolis apartment and ran several ID theft scams until some switched-on bank employees busted them. Sienke was charged with fraud, but there was a loophole. As he was actually paying off some of the bills he'd racked up under these false identities, the charges were reduced from fraud to forgery. He spent several months in the pokey and was out again by late 1996. He just doesn't learn, does he? No, he learns a lot. He just keeps yeah. going and he gets better at it. It doesn't yeah, mean he doesn't learn. Yeah, but he learn. keeps going to jail, though. Sienke first saw Lisa Tony in 1998 when he was out watching his niece ride her tricycle. He'd been living at his parents' house in Dalton, Chicago, across the road from Marcus and Lisa Tony. He said, she wasn't my type at all. She was just ordinary. Of Lisa, he said, she wasn't my type at all. She was just ordinary. Explaining that Lisa was overweight and in her early 40s at the time. How dare she? But he had a keen sense when it came to knowing when someone wanted to bang him. And he said, she was flirting with the eyes. With the eyes, I tell you, with the eyes. With the eyes, I like it. Lisa had spent over 20 years working at Ameritech and was now a human resources manager. So, like, her name wasn't Linda from HR, but Lisa was close enough for them. Yeah, I'll buy that. Her husband, Marcus, was a custodian at City Colleges and was smart with money and invested in rental properties. 
Their marriage was tumultuous, but seemed strong enough to those around them. I mean, they fought a lot, but they always seemed to make up. That is, of course, until silver-tongued devil Sienki came along. He knew exactly what to say and do to win Lisa's affections. Sienki said he wasn't in love with Lisa, but she certainly fell hard for him. And she took to asking him to kill her husband Marcus, as she didn't want to lose out financially by divorcing him. Sienki said he had a better idea and he stole Marcus's identity. Then the two of them lived it up on Marcus's dime. They leased fancy cars, ate at expensive restaurants, shopped their faces off for luxury goods and banged at five-star hotels. Besides Lisa, Sienki also had other relationships with several women in Chicago and Detroit. He said his secret was to choose intelligent women who had put barriers around their hearts. Then he'd strip away those barriers by moulding himself into whatever they wanted him to be. He was as good at it as he was arrogant about it. That's the worst kind of fraud, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's uh, emotional as well as yeah. monetary. That can permanently damage people. That's horrible. He permanently damages a lot of people. Dude, there is so much more to this story. Okay, continue. Sienki met 20-year-old Jason Butcher through a friend he'd done time with. The Eminem-obsessed Jason was raised in a God-fearing family near Ann Arbor, but as a 14-year-old, he was arrested and accused of building pipe bombs and hiding them in his bedroom. So he did some time in juvie, teenager jail. During his senior year in high school, he recruited a couple of friends and went to work counterfeiting $20 bills. He was very good at it. Ooh. After a housekeeper found garbage bags full of shredded rejects and the Secret Service was called in, Jason pleaded guilty and served some federal time because he was over 18 by then. Now released, the skilled forger and bomb maker was keen to show off his skills by helping Sienki with his devious schemes. Meanwhile, things were turning to shit for Marcus Tony. His marriage of six years to his wife Lisa was failing and he was pretty sure that his wife was cheating on him. Late one night, Lisa's car was vandalised. Blaming Marcus, she asked for an order of protection against him, which meant that he had to move out of the house that they shared. Oh, do you think Stinky did that? It's possible. Hmm. It's not been proven. He moved into one of the rental properties that he'd bought. Now, when he tried to get the phone connected there, despite his lifetime of good credit history, his application was denied. He was told that his credit rating was crap due to unpaid accounts in the Detroit area. Marcus insisted that the bills weren't his, but they didn't believe him. Well, that can take years to reverse that. Oh, my I God. Mean, it can take it, decades it, yeah, to reverse this yeah, stuff. Yeah, we've, we've done stories about this before. Around Thanksgiving 1999, a collection agency called Marcus at work asking why he was two months late making his payment on his newly leased Lexus SUV. He told them that he didn't own a stinking Lexus. More outrageous bills appeared and the debt collectors kept right on calling. Sienki used a fake ID to have all of Marcus's mail redirected to a P.O. box. He would then filter out the things he wanted him to see and hand-deliver them, keeping the rest. Oh, that's kind of smart for a con man to do that, actually. Uh, look, yeah. you know what? He's got mad skills at ruining people's lives. He really does. Yeah, I mean, if that was something one could admire, I'd do so. 
but it isn't, so we don't. By the end of the year, Marcus had met with an attorney to find out how to reclaim the good name that had been stolen from him. He was also beginning to suspect that the man who had stolen his identity was somehow connected to his wife, Lisa. Well, he's right. He's so right. Sienki had opened at least eight new accounts since August and had blown through over $200,000 in Marcus's name. But Marcus was wising up. According to his sister, he threatened to report Lisa to her employer. He couldn't yet prove she was responsible for his identity theft, but his suspicions were very high. Trust your instincts, Marcus. Absolutely. Marcus hired a private investigator to help him solve the problem of his missing identity. Worried he might eventually expose him, Sienki came up with yet another evil plan. Oh, do tell. In early 2000, Jason Butcher bought laser fire igniters, cans of gunpowder, a galvanised pipe nipple, a few galvanised pipe end caps, some 9-volt batteries and four pull chain switches. Well, I'm not going to touch the galvanised pipe nipple thing. (laughs) Really? um, Because I kind of want to touch it to see what it feels like. (laughs) This this is getting even worse. Someone's going to get exploded, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh. yeah. Keep going. He then used two pipes that he had on hand to teach Sienki how to make pipe bombs. Because that's the skill Sienki needs, oh, right? Oh, no. He packed two pipes with gunpowder and secured them to a plywood platform that was placed inside a cardboard box. He attached the chain switches to the batteries and igniters and to the top flaps of the box. So opening the box would pull the chains, completing the power circuit and lighting the gunpowder. Ooh. Explosion. Boom fuckalunga. Boom fuckalunga. Hard. Sienki assembled the bombs on the kitchen floor of Lisa's place in Dalton, placing them in a Sony VCR box. Then he went and had the package gift wrapped and delivered it to Marcus's front porch. He figured Marcus couldn't help but open such a well presented package. But Marcus wasn't digmatized by him and he found the package to be very suspicious. Uh-huh. When days had passed without Marcus taking the bait, Sienki called him and left antagonistic messages on his voicemail, daring him to open the package. Marcus was a really cluey guy. He took the box to a police station, telling them that it was evidence in the continuing theft of his identity. An officer made a report, but didn't keep the box. He told Marcus to take up the issue with the credit bureau, which is something Marcus was already doing. That's not great police work, is it? No, mm. no, it really um, it could have been better. On the evening of February 15th, 2000, Marcus and his BFF, Alfonso Butler, were chucking back some beers in Marcus's lounge room. They were discussing his broken marriage, his feelings of being stalked, and that mysterious box that he'd been sent, which was sitting on the coffee table in front of them. Marcus was worried that it contained a video of Lisa cheating on him. Come on, man, Alfonso said. Just open it. I'm here for you. Just get it over with already. The two men unwrapped the package and began ripping away at the cardboard, seeing plywood where the VCR should have been. What the hell? Marcus said just before one of the two pipe bombs exploded, propelling Alphonse out the door, down the steps and onto the footpath. He was injured but still alive. 
Marcus was not so lucky. His body slammed into the wall, his feet and left arm were blown off, and his heart was pierced by shrapnel. Oh, wow. I bet Alfonso felt some survivor guilt there. Oh, he had so much guilt about this. That was his best friend. They'd been friends for a really long time, and, you know, he was the one that was like, come on, let's open it. No one expects a pipe bomb. No. Yeah, he he felt so bad about that. He probably still does. Poor guy. Investigators began looking into Lisa's phone and computer records. They canvassed the Chicago and Detroit areas, tracing back calls and emails. The trail led to an informant in Michigan who gave them the names of Jason Butcher and Sienke Lalamand, as well as information about the bombing plot. Now, this informant agreed to wear a wire in Jason's apartment. They put Jason under surveillance, hoping he'd lead them to Sienke, who had earned himself a spot on the ATF's 10 Most Wanted list. No, the ATF don't appreciate people being exploded, do they? No, it's kind of their thing to not appreciate that. Yeah. With information obtained from the wire, agents had what they needed to charge Jason with conspiracy to commit murder. But slippery Sienke had dumped Lisa and was in the wind. Sipping fruity cocktails in a Montego Bay resort in Jamaica, Sienke was looking for a new woman to con on myoneandonly.com. Oh, even if he got away with it, he just can't help himself, can he? Oh, no, it, he actually feels really superior to everyone else by sort of conning them. It makes oh. him feel good inside. Oh, it's a sociopath, obviously. Absolutely, and oh. quite the narcissist while we're at it. Oh. 54-year-old Sandra Lavelle was a fit professional woman who lived in California. She had, ironically enough, worked for 10 years with Langley Productions, who make the TV show Cops. Oh, the irony is ironic. She worked on the show Cops as some kind of accountant. Sienke sent Sandra a photo of himself in a super skimpy speedo with the simple message, Come to Jamaica. Thirsty Sandra's one-word response was, when? Uh. I saw that picture. It made me go, oh, I know some guys that might want to come to Jamaica with you, but me? Mm. No, it didn't do that for you. No, too skimpy. Too skimpy. (laughs) Soon after the messaging, Sandra flew to Jamaica and spent four days with the apparently irresistible Sienke. When she had to return to the States, she wanted him to come with her. Sienke said that he couldn't, and he actually told her all about the pipe bomb murder of Marcus Tony. Why would he do that? Well, oftentimes, I think it's to sort of get someone involved with you. They have to tell these dark truths to be able to then tell these amazing lies. Uh, It's kind of a currency for con artists, you know? uh, Truth with lies. Also, to have her invested in his his story too. And so that she'll help him out if he goes back to the States. And, you know, he's in Jamaica, so he could just sort of vanish from there if she acted surprised. But um, Sandra must have been next-level cockstruck um, as finding out that her hookup was a murderer didn't faze her at all. In fact, she even sent him a plane ticket so that he could come to California. Sandra, what the hell? To avoid detection, Sienke obtained a new fake ID. Once in LA, he decided to get plastic surgery to change his face because he's face off like that. Sandra made him an appointment with her plastic surgeon and footed the bill for her murderer boyfriend's new face. Now that is not a sentence I ever thought I'd say. No, that's an odd one. 
ATF agent Mitch Wido had been pumping known CNK associates for information about his whereabouts for weeks. Oh, he's hot on the trail. Oh, yes. Wido had found out that Jason Butcher went online daily under the screen name Marshall Mathers, which, of course, is Eminem's real name. Eminem's real name, yeah. And Jason was regularly emailing Sienke. ATF computer experts subpoenaed AOL for transmission records, but the process was pretty slow. Agents decided to arrest Jason, risking the loss of the communication trail he'd been unknowingly blazing. On May 16th, Wido arrested Jason and fortunately he rolled over. With Wido doing the typing, Jason dictated a few more emails to Sneaky Sienke. Ooh. Meanwhile, US Marshals were working on tracking down his mobile's location. They knew he was in the heart of LA somewhere, but they needed the exact address. AOL finally came through for them with server records and Detroit ATF employees came up with the name Sandra Lavell and her address. On May 30th, 2000, officers put the house under surveillance, but the reports came back saying, we see a guy, the same height, the same build, but he doesn't look like the photos of Sienki Lalaman that they've been sent, you know, like they're like... He kind of looks like him, but he doesn't look like him. Hmm, for reasons. Yeah, well, the agents were ordered to arrest him anyway. So Sienke and Sandra were arrested the next morning as they were driving off in her Range Rover. It turned out they were on their way to the plastic surgeon's office as Sienke's new cheek implants were collapsing. Oh no, not my beautiful face. Sandra Lavell remained free and on the cops' payroll for months after Sienke's arrest as jurisdictional issues kept charges from being filed against her in Chicago. So she resigned from cops in March 2001. An audit conducted after she left found that she had defrauded Langley Productions of over a million dollars. So Sienke ain't the only sneaky fucker here. She's a bit of a crook too, eh? Massive! Oh, Sandra. On February 1st, 2002, agents finally arrested her on the charge of aiding and abetting Sienke while he was a fugitive and also stealing a million plus dollars from cops. Sienke was sentenced to four consecutive life terms without parole. Marcus Tony's wife, Lisa, was sentenced to life imprisonment, also without parole. Four additional defendants, including Sandra Lavelle and Jason Butcher, were charged and convicted of conspiracy, fraud and harbouring a fugitive. They received sentences ranging from 1 to 15 years imprisonment. Now, how the hell was that for a crazy story? What a hell of a story. That was amazing. Uh Uh-huh. Really? Whoa. Whoa. You know I try and find the weirdest shit I can. When I found this, I was like, oh, come on. Okay, this is my Christmas present from the world. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Yeah. What a story. I hope everyone enjoyed that. I had Mm. to cut the shit out of it. There was so much more to it, but those were the main details. Well, I'd like to say my story is even better. Well, no doubt, Barney, because you're the greatest. Is that a thing that we say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yo, tinsel tits. What time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Russian Tara? Mm, yet. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. Also, we've opened this up now as well, so it can actually be true crime-inspired works of fiction. That's right. It can be true crime fake time. No, no. fake crime nerd time. It can be fake crime nerd time. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really work either, does it? No. <laughs> yeah, but we're getting more people writing in now and like doing it, so it's been worth it. Well, we have one here from Iris. I love Iris. And it's about the 1968 movie, The Boston Strangler, directed by Richard Fleisser, who has 61 directing credits. Wow. He did everything from Mr. Majestic, the Charles Bronson classic, to Dr. Doolittle. The Eddie um, Murphy not classic? Or? No, not the Eddie Murphy <laughs> Oh, hang one. on. So then it was um, uh, Rex Harrison? That's right. Ah! Cool. The Boston Strangler is about the true events of the murder of 13 women. And uh, you know what she did? She sent in a recording. So let's hear it. Oh, yes. Yay. Hey, fam bam. Iris here, and I would like to introduce you to the Boston Strangler, the Hollywood version of a true crime. So it's 1968. You're sitting in a darkened theater, probably in a seedy part of town, and the following words appear on the screen. This is the true story of Albert DeSalvo, the self-confessed Boston Strangler. The characters and incidents you're about to see are based on fact. And it sticks close to the facts, even though Hollywood added its creative license to the whole thing. The names of the victims, for example, were changed probably because it was such a recent event, but all of the key elements are there. This is an incredible and bold movie for being filmed in 1968. It takes on a subject matter that was still raw in the mind and has scenes with homosexual topics and is unapologetic when it comes to some of the crime scenes. This movie also had a very innovative way of being filmed. Some scenes were shot in a collage type of frame, giving it an element which hits the viewer from all sides. You have the view of the victim, the view of the person finding the victim, and the view of the crime scene all at once on the screen, something that had never been done before. Or the fact that the main character doesn't even have screen time until a whole hour into the film. Not the norm. A lot of great actors and some amazing portrayals which should have been considered for the Oscars. The on-film chemistry of Tony Curtis and Henry Fonda as DeSalvo and Bottomley at the tail end of the movie is incredible and both actors blow the roles out of the water. William Hickey fucking shines. 
The self-loathing guilt hurt he exudes as he plays the part of Eugene T. O'Rourke makes you believe that you are truly watching the man he is portraying. But for the time, some of the words being used, the subject matter, and the LGBTQ exploitation elements in this movie kept it and the actors from being nominated because critics felt it belonged in the grindhouse theaters and not mainstream. This is a beautifully filmed movie and I recommend it wholeheartedly for the true crime fan. Don't watch it for the facts, watch it for the entertainment and you won't be disappointed. I really hope you enjoy 1968's The Boston Strangler as much as I do every time I watch it. Well, thank you, Iris, for that. That's fantastic. Hey, Tara. Mm? Did you know that Iris suggested we do Pedro Rodriguez Filos back on episode 40? I did. That was Killy Pedro. She also bought me drinks for my birthday last year, She's so I love her. kind of awesome, right? And she is also the co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast, which has over 300 episodes. Yeah, they've been going for over five years. Now, is it all about sort of grindhouse exploitation cinema, yeah? That's exactly what it's about. I and, and really need to tell more people about that because yeah. I know a lot of people into that cool shit. Yeah, well, if you want to know about it, I'll put, I'll put some details about that show in the notes of this episode. Yeah. You know that they recorded weekly for like five years or something? I don't know how they're still alive. Mm. (laughs) So, Barney. Yes, Tara. I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Tommy Ivanovic was born in Melbourne on April 14th, 1975. He grew up to be a short, skinny and angry man who hung out with the wrong kind of people. By the time he was 26, Tommy had completed an apprenticeship as a pastry chef, but this wasn't his real vocation, Tara, mm. as he had made a shitload of money selling drugs for Carl Williams. Carl Williams? We actually did a whole special on him. It was episode number 53. And it is one of our less shit episodes, so you should probably check it out, listeners, if you haven't already. So what did he do? Did he make like little pastries with drugs inside them and it was kind of like a, a, you know, I'd like a croissant, please? Was it one of those things? No, I think the pastry chef's stuff was just a cover, really. Oh, okay. He just went to nightclubs and sold disco bickies. I don't know. I kind of like the idea of, you know, ordering an Ecky Danish. I'll have a cherry Ecky Danish. Thank you very much. Nom, 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 nom. Nom, 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 nom. Hot-tempered and with no off button, Tommy managed to chalk up 14 convictions for driving offences. That's quite a lot. Tommy was a perfect friend for Carl Williams. Little Tommy did not only know wannabe gangsters, he also knew crooked cops. Well, we all know Fatboy loved that shit. He met alleged dirty cop Paul Dale through nightclubs in the early 2000s that were awash with disco bickies. <laughs> oh, were they that just... Yeah, I do, actually. In September 2001, Paul Dale took part in a drug raid on Tommy's house. They found ecstasy and Tommy was arrested, but he would never be charged. Tommy was in a shitty mood on January 8, 2002. This was not unique. Tommy was always in a shitty mood. <laughs> oh, he just had his period all day, every day, right? It was just before 6pm on a sunny Tuesday afternoon and Tommy was driving around Brunswick just north of Melbourne, with a 32 Walther self-loading pistol under his seat. Oh, I love a good self-loathing pistol. <laughs> That's not what I said. <laughs> I hear what I want to hear, okay? 
38-year-old Ivan Conabear was also on the roads around Brunswick. Ivan was riding a 250cc motorcycle which he had got some six months earlier. He was still a learner rider and L-plates were attached to the motorcycle. In order to gain some experience, he would go for rides with his mate John Hare who rode his own motorcycle. Near Rose Street in Brunswick, John Hare first noticed a late model silver sports car that was being driven by Tommy. The sports car followed the pair for a couple of kilometres and turned with them into Cornwall Street tailgating Ivan. This apparently upset Ivan, so he slowed down and gave Tommy the rude finger. Tommy beeped his horn and passed the surly Ivan. Tommy drove his car south down Cornwall Street until he reached his home where he lived with his parents and sister. Tommy slowed his car and turned into the driveway. A roller gate barring entry to the driveway was placed at the fence line of the house. As his car approached the driveway, the roller gate was activated and rolled up. The vehicle came to a rest, however, at the fence line with a portion of the rear extending over the roadway of Cornwall Street. Ivan rode past the sports car and swung to the curb to his right, stopping directly outside Tommy's home. Ivan attempted to apply the centre stand of the bike with his foot, but he was unable to get it down. He stood straddling the bike, having it rest against the backs of his legs. Ivan, who was wearing a full-face motorcycle helmet, gestured towards Tommy and had some serious words with him, Tara. Was he wearing the helmet the whole time? He was. Why are you such a fucking cunt, man? I can't what are you trying to do? I think he might have flipped the thing. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have thought to do that. I would have just, mm. like, yelled until, like, my visor got kind of, like... Fogged up? Yeah, big time. <laughs> Ooh, you know you're yeah. having a good time when you fog up your own visor. These events were captured by the CCTV video camera, which was attached to the wall near the porch of Tommy's house. The video camera operated continuously and faced towards the front garden. The camera range was quite wide and took in the front gate and driveway areas of the house. Both sides of Cornwall Street were also within its range. The video camera did not record sound, and there were no witnesses to what was heard and what was said between the two men. So Tara, we can only guess what was said, but we can be sure it was unpleasant and full of profanities. Well, this is my favourite kinds of sentences. Like a regular casual conversation between the two of us, probably. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, when Ivan started abusing Tommy, he was about 10 to 15 metres from the sports car. Tommy walked towards him with a measured pace. As he did so, Tommy had his right hand near his waist. He was holding his 32 Walther pistol. Well, yeah, Ivan must have just thought, like, you know, it's just some common road rage. Guy, what the hell were you doing kind of thing? He had no idea who he was dealing with. Well, as Tommy reached less than a metre away from Ivan, the motorcyclist suddenly moved forward and pushed Tommy firmly in the chest, causing Tommy to fall backwards and to land heavily on his short and angry ass. <laughs> as Ivan did this, the motorcycle fell to the ground and Ivan appeared to step or stumble over it. Tommy quickly rose from the ground, his ego well and truly bruised. Yeah. He moved towards Ivan, who in turn appeared to make a move towards Tommy. Tommy held his hand in front of him with his elbow bent. That was the moment Tommy fired the first shot into Ivan's body. After the first shot, Ivan stumbled back a short step. Tommy moved forward and fired a second shot, 
Ivan fell to the ground. Medical evidence later revealed that one bullet fired at close range entered the front of the lower abdomen in the region of the left groin. This was not the fatal shot. The other bullet entered Ivan's stomach. It damaged his liver and blood vessels and causing Ivan to bleed to death. Man, that escalated quickly. It really did, didn't it? Ivan's friend, John Hare, had ridden his motorcycle past both Ivan and Tommy. Afterwards, he slowed down and observed in his rear vision mirror Ivan pushing Tommy. He heard two gunshots as he commenced to do a U-turn. He rode back to the scene. As he rode back, Tommy had stopped to pick up something from the ground near where the shooting had occurred, then walked back to his car. Oh, do you think he was getting the shell casings? I think that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, okay. He got in the car and reversed it onto the roadway. His passage, though, was blocked by passing vehicles which had slowed down and he stopped his car and stepped out onto the roadway. As he did so, John Hare stopped behind his car and faced Tommy. Tommy said to him, What the fuck are you looking at? To which John replied, You fucking shot him, mate! Tommy walked through the open driveway gate, across the lawn and into his house. He returned using a mobile phone. John went to Ivan, who was lying on the nature strip. Tommy said to John, He had me by the throat. What do you expect me to do? To which John replied, Well, not fucking shoot him! Witnessing this whole clusterfuck was Liam Aramatoulis, a 15-year-old student who had ridden his bicycle past the scene where he saw two men having an argument. In the CCTV, Liam can be seen pedalling past just after Tommy had got up from the ground after being pushed over. Liam later told police he saw Ivan lunge forward as though to punch Tommy. Liam saw Tommy reach into his right-hand pocket and take out a gun. Liam then heard two shots fired close together. He said he saw Ivan lean over and grab his lower stomach area. After Ivan had collapsed, passers-by came onto the scene, one of whom was Kylie Gruen. She saw Tommy walk out from the house with his sister, who was speaking into a mobile phone relaying information about the state of Ivan to emergency services. Kylie asked Tommy what was going on. He appeared to her to be quite agitated and said, I shot him, I shot him, what the fuck did you want me to do? It was self-defence, I got it on video. Tommy's mother met her son at the door of the house and said he appeared to be very frightened. He told her, Someone grabbed me by the throat very hard. An off-duty police officer, Sergeant Gary Fleishman, also arrived after Ivan had fallen to the ground. He stopped to help and saw Tommy coming out from his house using a mobile phone. Tommy told him there had been an accident. Some kind of accident, isn't it? Sergeant Gary also said in his statement to police, Tommy was quite agitated and he had said, Man, he grabbed me around the neck so I shot him. What else could I do, man? Well, I can think of a fucking hundred thousand other things he could have done. A lot of things. I mean, maybe show him that you had a gun, he'd back off, probably. Um, yeah, anyway, let's yeah, not this is people with... Yeah, completely disproportionate. Yeah, really is disproportionate. A friend of Tommy's, Rocco Arica, came to the scene in response to a phone call from Tommy. Rocco said Tommy looked stunned and his eyes were wide open. He said he had never seen Tommy in that state before. Tommy told Rocco that he'd been grabbed by the neck and had been thrown to the floor. Tommy, according to Rocco, added, he had threatened to kill me and then go inside and kill my family. 
Tommy asked Rocco to get him out of there. Tommy and Rocco departed the scene in Rocco's vehicle. Before they left, Sergeant Gary, who was in plain clothes, but he had identified himself as a police officer, asked them to remain at the scene. After driving around the block, Rocco knew he would be well advised to get no further involved and told Tommy to get the fuck out of his car. Yeah, that's a smart move, Rocco. Tommy went and hid the weapon in a drain. Not a smart move. He would later show police where he stashed the gun. He then walked back up the street to see paramedics working on Ivan. One of Tommy's neighbours from across the road asked Tommy, Tommy, what's happening? Tommy just shrugged his shoulders. Oh. Mm. Police attended the scene and Tommy was arrested and taken to the police station. Tommy exercised his right not to participate in an interview or make a statement. And later, at his trial, he pleaded not guilty and did not take the stand. Yeah, that's probably... You know they normally don't put him on the stand. Ah, tight lips, Tommy. Is that what they call him? No, they just call him Little Tommy. (laughs) I heard he was also called Tommy the Gun. Yeah, I wasn't going to do that because he's a bit of a dick. I'm not going to give him a cool nickname. His defence conducted the case on the basis that Tommy had acted in self-defence, although counsel for Tommy unsuccessfully asked the judge to also include the defence of provocation to the jury. Yeah, no. The judge Mm. said, nah. The judge went, yeah, nah. Nah. In his testimony, Rocco Arrico, that's Tommy's friend, Mm -hmm. agreed with defence counsel that in the months leading up to this shooting, a couple of people who Tommy knew had been shot. Oh, so maybe he's, like, really hyper-twitchy because, like, he's involved in gangland shit and people are getting shot. Well, that's right. Rocco and Tommy had both been working for Carl Williams. Oh, fat boy. Now, just a little sidebar here, Tara. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Rocco. Oh, please. He went on to have quite a criminal career. I believe so. Rocco was a suspect in a later organised hit of one-time friend and boss Carl Williams. Mm Mm-hmm and is believed to have made a multi-million dollar fortune from a secret alliance with an alleged crooked cop, oh. Paul Dale, who oh, I mentioned he earlier. he comes up a bit, I could he? do a whole podcast on this guy. We but could do a series, but it's all alleged, right, because he, he, he didn't get charged. Is oh, that his, true? Yeah, yeah. No, he was charged. He was acquitted. Oh, sorry. I mean, he didn't actually get found Yeah, no. The whole Victorian justice system fell apart. I'm not going to say he did it, okay? I'm not going to no. say that. But I could do a whole podcast on this crooked cop. <laughs> yeah. This alleged crooked cop. This alleged crooked cop. Because I didn't say he did anything wrong. No. no. Well, according to underworld sources, mafia-linked Rocco was the recipient of several drums of precursor chemicals stolen in rip-offs of Melbourne drug dealers. The chemicals were later converted to methamphetamine worth millions of dollars. Or beans and beans of bollers. Oh, a billion boller empire. <laughs> we run one of those. Well, Tara, this helped Rocco move from being part of Carl Williams' team of drug dealers to one of the state's top organised crime bosses with an estimated wealth of $10 million in the space of a decade. Yeah, some sweet, sweet bank. Well, this granted him the kind of power and influence that helped make him a strong suspect in organising the killing of Carl bashed to death in maximum security Barwon prison by Matthew Johnson. We've talked about him before. Yeah, we have. Also, the implement they used was a little ironic. 
One strong theory is that Rocco feared Carl might implicate him in the shooting murder of a standover man, Richard Milanovic, in St Kilda's Esquire Hotel in May 2000. Oh, it's a tight web they've got going on, isn't it? Oh, it all came crumbling down for Rocco, though. So, like, everyone's so connected in it. By 2016, Rocco's empire was in tatters. He was facing the prospect of deportation to his native Italy at the end of a long jail sentence. Rocco was eventually found guilty of gun and drug possession, extortion, intentionally causing injury and trafficking methamphetamine. Detectives who raided his Eureka Tower apartment in 2015 found a Vespa motor scooter in a storage unit with a pistol, ammunition and 55.7 grams of a drug called Liquid G. Liquid G? Wow, that scooter had a going on. <laughs> Rocco once put his lifestyle down to hard work and being a lucky punter. <laughs> uh, I've got some good quotes from Rocco here. Oh, come here. on, really? He just gambled well? I work every day at the Ligon Street Cafe and I work as a builder. I've had some good fortune with gambling. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Now, Tara, although he was an enthusiastic gambler, police believe to have found his explanation implausible. Yeah, maybe. His hands-on style was shown in 1999 when he and Dino Dibra and two other men dragged a man off a Sunshine Street, pistol-whipped and kicked him before bundling him into the boot of their car for a $5,000 ransom. Oh, man, that sounds like so much hard work. I'd rather get a real job. You can see that in the first uh, season of Underbelly, actually. Underbelly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to little Tommy. Let's see what's going to happen to little Tommy. Oh, the gun. Like to know. The angry short man. The tiny gun. Yeah, <laughs> the tiny gun. <laughs> There's a, that doesn't oh, sound super foreboding, oh, does Tommy, it? Tommy, don't come for me. It's all in jest. I know. We love you. No, we don't. During his trial, having stated the legal components of self-defence, Judge Cummins said, There are times, unfortunately, where people are attacked violently and kill in self-defence perfectly legitimately. But? On the other hand, (laughs) the law is not stupid and the law does not treat as a lawful justification a killing out of proportion to a threat posed. If someone simply hits you and you got at your pistol and shot them dead, that is not self-defence. And your common sense tells you the same thing. He had a point. Judge Cummins also said, Tommy was armed with a concealed, unlicensed gun and walked to a confrontation knowing that the safety catch had been released with it cocked and ready to fire, when in a quiet suburban street was a particularly serious feature of this offence. Such conduct must be strongly discouraged. Rocco told the court that Tommy travelled to America around 2001 and was deeply affected by what happened in New York. With the Twin Towers? Yeah. Rocco also said Tommy believed that people were after him and that his life had been threatened, that he was afraid for his life and that if anything happened to him, to look after his family. Well, yeah, he's probably pretty, like, rightfully paranoid if he's, like, down with the Williams gang. I mean, you know, he's a crim. People do want to... They were all killing each other back in the day here in Melbourne. They really were. He stated that Tommy said that when he came back from the USA, he would install a surveillance security system and when he came back in the middle of October, he did indeed install one. Yeah, and that just caught him murdering someone on camera, right? Well, fucking boohoo. I don't buy any (laughs) of this shit. And the jury didn't either. Nah. 
Tommy was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 15 years. It was really an ego thing, really. He got pushed over, man. He yeah, thought he, he was got, a big man. he fell man. on his butt. Yeah, he fell on his short, angry ass. Yeah, you know that, like, he lives in Melbourne too, and so do we. So, yeah, look at us. Edgy nah, as fuck, probably nah, going to get Tommy's killed. a lovely guy. Did I say that? Yeah, he's really nice. He makes really good pastries. I like pastries. He wanted us to tell this story. <laughs> Tommy appealed both his... Tommy appealed both his conviction and sentence. He lost both those appeals. Yeah. So, yeah, he went to jail. Yeah. But there's more. I know, because there's always more. When did he have plastic surgery to change his face into the shape of Whitney Houston? (laughs) Well, I'll get to that, Tara. Just don't be impatient, okay? Sorry, I can't help it. I'm so excited. In April 2010, Tommy was sharing a cell block with Matthew the General Johnson and Carl Williams. Uh Uh-huh. After Matthew Johnson murdered Carl Williams with a bike seat pole, his defence when it came to trial was that he killed Carl before Carl could kill him. Johnson said that he'd been told by his cellmate, Little Tommy, that Carl was planning to kill him using a common prison weapon, a sock full of beard balls. Oh, pool balls in a sock. Oh, that's, that's a classic, that one. Now, Tara, CCTV footage showed the murder clearly, and it should have been seen immediately by the guards. But none of the screens were being monitored as Carl was attacked and left to die with his injuries. See, that's kind of unusual too, right? Come on. It was not until little Tommy advised the guards to check on Carl 25 minutes later that the murder was even discovered. Mm. You know what Tommy did next? What? Little Tommy. Tommy then got on the phone to his old mate Rocco and told him the deed was done. Oh, so he's super complicit, allegedly. Allegedly. Mm. All right, more tomfoolery from Tommy. In May, <laughs> Tommy foolery. <laughs> Tommy foolery. In May 2011, Victoria Police were granted permission to interview little Tommy over an attempted murder 10 years before. Detectives questioned Tommy over the attempted hit on a West Meadows man Lee Paskew in 2001. Police quizzed Tommy for six hours, but Tommy Tight Lips did not say a word. Ah, bit of a hard man. Yeah, he knows to keep his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Probably wise. On April 28th, 2017, Tommy was shivved in the exercise yard of Barwon Maximum Security Prison. Oh, that's painful being shivved in the exercise yard. Ow. <laughs> oh, it's, it's nasty. Emergency services were called after the 42-year-old inmate was stabbed on the tennis court. Oh, tennis court. Oh, that really hurts. <laughs> That's worse than the exercise. Oh, yard. well, no. Man, it stings. Tommy was taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The prison was placed on lockdown after the incident. So little Tommy Ivanovich, Ivanovich, the third man in the room when Carl Williams was murdered, was released on parole in April 2018. Oh, that's pretty recent. That's right, only a few months ago. He has been seen back on Ligon Street. Yeah. Oh, so just down the road. Yeah, celebrating his freedom with some old friends at an Italian restaurant, Villa Romano, dining with the uh, notorious John Curry. Oh. Mick Gatto, who is business partners with Curry, treats the venue as a second home 
Um, he missed the celebrations. What? Oh, I guess he was busy. Yeah, I guess he was busy. It has been reported to the media that Tommy's friends are eager to ensure he is not left with money troubles. Oh, well, it's nice. Rewards for uh, Tommy tight lips, maybe? Oh, well, yeah. If you're going to keep your lips tight, you're going to get some sweet, sweet bollers. Well, Tara, police still believe the convicted killer has information on significant crimes and powerful underworld figures. Tommy was freed on bail under tight conditions, is under a nighttime curfew, and has restrictions on his consumption of alcohol. So he's grounded. <laughs> he's, he's you you told me are grounded. He is electronically monitored by an ankle bracelet. Oh, that's so Florida. <laughs> wow. So that's the story of Tommy Ivanovich, little Tommy, the gun. Yeah. What a corker. I think there's more to his story. I think <gasps> I think he'll pop up in the news. Mm, it sounds like there could be. Uh, yeah, because like he's only in his mid forties right now, so he's got a, a lot of living left to do. Got a lot of living left mm. to do, Tommy. Stay out of trouble, man. Um, yeah, that's advisable. Now, Tara, I have a question for you. Uh, my answer is go fuck yourself. What, what was the question? What is Aussie as? Oh, okay. Still go fuck yourself. But also, Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Laszlo's sitting on your desk looking right into your eyes. Yeah. I think he wants to hear one too. That's my 10-week-old kitten. Yeah, Barney's yeah. Barney's kitten is, is right here for this. He's into it. He's probably going to bat at the pages. On April Fool's Day 2007, 38-year-old Benjamin Jorgensen, probably nicknamed Yorgo, and his accomplice, 36-year-old Donna Hayes, probably nicknamed Donna. Yeah, there's not a lot you can do with Donna. Well, they waited until after all the customers had left the Cuckoo restaurant in the small town of Alinda before confronting a staff member by his car in the restaurant's car park. Hey, this restaurant... The Cuckoo in Alinda. We've talked about this before. We have. It I, came up in an episode. I believe it was the Alice Tamarcus episode, uh, episode 38. Yeah. Wasn't there a celebrity chef that went missing from there? Yeah, who started it and he killed him. Yeah. Oh, who killed who? Alex Tamarcus killed the, the owner of that restaurant. Was the body ever found? Yes, it was over an unpaid debt. Anyway, anyway. the restaurant continued on. And uh, Yorgo and Donna... They demanded the frightened staff member hand over a black plastic bag. Now, they thought that the bag contained the restaurant's takings. However, the bag was actually just full of leftover bread rolls, which the staff member was taking home to feed his chickens. Restaurant manager Horst Lanscht said the robbers then demanded the staff member's car keys. He said as the staff member handed over the keys, the shotgun Yorgo was holding discharged, shooting Donna right in the arse. Ouch. Horsch said she dropped to the ground like a sack of potatoes in the middle of Olinda's main road. He and his staff member ran inside the restaurant and locked the doors. They could hear Donna's screaming in pain as they called the police. But before the cops arrived, Yorgo carried Donna to the road where they were picked up in a getaway car. Horsch said that no staff were injured, no money was taken and no damage was caused to the restaurant in the attempted robbery. He said it was frightening. Everybody was in a bit of shock. 
And that was Laszlo knocking over all our shit and fucking our shit up. Yeah, he just jumped up. Are and we knocked. still rolling? No, he was actually jumping all over me when I was reading those yeah, other sentences. Yeah, he just. He's, he's not a professional cat yet, and he attempted to a, le- a leap on the shelf, and he just knocked some shit over oh, and so fell on his ass. He was actually like jumping on my hands and all over my body as I was reading. Oh. I was just going with it. Oh, Leslie. Oh, he's a sweetie, but yeah, he he doesn't yet know how to be a cat. Um, so where was I? Horst said it was frightening. Everybody was a bit in shock. It came out of nowhere and all over a bag of rolls. Donna took herself to the William Anglis Hospital before being transferred to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne with serious bum injuries. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Like, really? Like, uh, crime does not pay. Yeah, you can't sit, sit uh, on that injury, can oh, you? Oh, no, you cannot. Oh, well, at least they got that whole bag full of stale bread rolls. I mean, that must well, have sweetened the deal. No. Yorgo was arrested shortly after 5am and was questioned by detectives. Both he and Buttshot Donna pleaded guilty to armed robbery. Victorian County Court Judge Williams told the hearing that the robbery was a complete fiasco and the two were a pair of fools. He's not wrong. He, they put the fool in April Fool's Day, I'm telling you. Donna had already been jailed for culpable driving and was sentenced to a total of eight years with a non-parole period of five and a half years, while Yorgo will serve a non-parole period of four and a half years. It's said the chickens who missed out on that bag of stale bread rolls have a little something planned for the pair when they are released. Chicken revenge! (laughs) Chicken revenge. Hey, you know the Cuckoo restaurant you were just talking about? Yeah. Um, I, I was just, while you were talking, I looked up their website. While and, I was talking, you weren't listening clearly. And I wasn't listening, but I looked mm-hmm. up their website and it says, daily live entertainment, music and a floor show, cowbell ringing and yodeling <gasps> equal to any in Bavaria. Yodele he So yeah, um, don't mess with them. Don't, you will get yeah. shot in the butt. Well, they have a great sh- great. Floor show and everything. And <laughs> Sometimes great food the, and the show in the parking lot is equally as impressive. <laughs> that was a great Aussie ass. What I heard, anyway. Well, it was actually um, thanks to a guy called Craig from Fern Tree Gully. Now, um, he plays music with my boyfriend, and I was trying to explain to him that we do a true crime podcast that's comedy. And he was like, how can you do true crime that's comedy? And I explained some stuff about Smitty last episode, and then I explained Aussie ass, and he went, oh, so like that robbery in Olinda where that chick got shot in the butt? And I was like, exactly like that. What is it? <laughs> well, you pulled your notepad out and I started totally, writing uh, things down. I put out my phone and made some notes. I was like, yes, exactly uh, that, Craig. Thank you. Uh, well, that was a great Aussie yes. I'm sure I'll remember that next week. Yeah, you won't. Next episode, yes. So this brings us to the end of another episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some really lovely reviews. We've got... Uh, Irie Irene from the USA. We've got Jiliak, also from the USA. Empyreon Blackthorn from the USA. We also have Natasha Kernow. We don't know where she's from because she left the review on our Facebook page, which is also a thing. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. That's uh, bloodymurderpodcast.com. That's it. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. Because, you know, we get thirsty sometimes. We get very thirsty. 
I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Snapshit and Instagram. Um, we have a Facebook group and a Facebook page. We're like just, we've carpet bombed the world with our shit. But yeah, check out our website. I'm pretty proud of it, actually. I put it together myself. I know. We've There's, got some um, great merchandise design. We've got some great merchandise designs and the Bloody Murder leggings. I'm waiting on my pair to arrive. They're phenomenal. If you like wearing leggings, you need to check them out. Yeah, there's shoes, stickers, mugs. Oh, They're well, lots of fun. All kinds of stuff. They're lots of fun. Um, there's also news and galleries and more episodes. Oh, and all the true crime nerd times that we've done, we have up there for recommendations for people. And we also have an um, explanation of what we're looking for if you're going to submit a true crime nerd time. Yeah, if you want to do a true crime nerd time, go there and it'll show you how to do it. Yeah. So thanks for listening and we'll be back early next year. We certainly will. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, so I know we already did a Christmas episode with Cambo. Oh, that was um, super fun. Oh, my God. I miss him so much. He's in Thailand now drinking mojitos. (laughs) (laughs) His word, not mine. Well, enjoy enjoy those mojitos, Oh, we love you. Um, Also, um, this episode's coming out on Christmas Eve. So, like, you know, lots of love to everyone listening to us over the Christmas period. Try to stay safe. Try to stay sane. You know, I hope whatever you're doing is bringing you she joy. I love Christmas. I love Christmas shopping when you've got a, a, a couple of little boys too. Oh, well, it's yeah. Because it's buy... kind of stuff you'd want yourself, Well, it's right? fun to buy toys and I get to play with all that shit too, which is yes. awesome fun. They hand, they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1990. I mean, half the Christmas present was was the kitten, of course. But, uh, yeah, we're going to have super fun these holidays. Yeah, and we hope wherever you are listening to this that, you know, you're having a good time too or at least having a nice chill. That's right. Oh, God, I've spent so many Christmases by myself. And, by the way, they're okay too. I oh. like having an orphan's Christmas. Oh, yeah. You I'm know? hoping to spend mine with my dog and my boyfriend and, and just come over here and hang out with you guys for a bit. Yeah, that sounds ideal. Yeah. So whatever mm. you're doing, um, we wish you goodwill and a restful time. And Happy New Year. Oh, that too. Wow, 2019. Oh, That's crazy, for isn't fuck's it? Sake. Have some good. Have a, have a good New Year's Eve. Yeah. <laughs> and don't, don't drink drive. No, never drink drive. That's just... Get a cab. Nah. Yeah, get a taxi. Stay on a couch. Stay on a couch. Yeah, just don't yeah. do it. No. Uh, you know, for your own safety, but also very much for the safety of others. <laughs> I know. Yeah, Look fuck. at us acting like fucking adults I know. for a Look, few oh, seconds. We're, we're grown-ups <laughs> Who now. Who the hell am I? I'm oh. like, oh, no, 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 You see when I say something like that, you, 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 complete, <laughs> it with, you complete it with saying fart in a bath. Well, that's what Edward Woodward sounds like. Bot in a bath. <laughs> no, I can't hear the rain through the headphones. You have a listen, though, because like, I can't really hear beats as well as I hear lyrics. Don't blame it on the rain. I can hear that. Ah, no, I can't, I can't hear it. What a masterful act they were. So, what, Barney. What were they called again? Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli. That's right. They were great. No. I like their dreads.
Yeah, but like they, they were, they were fake just, bands. They were male models, weren't they? Well, they were uh, showmen. Well, who knows if this is our <laughs> real voices and we're just models. Who, yeah, who, who, I who am could tell? a male model and a very attractive one of that, well. I might add. Oh, the ladies drop their panties when male model Tara comes to town. Well, that's all comparative, really, Tara. I mean, you put you next to Cambo, and that's that's a different story. Oh, well, no, I'm completely gross next to Cambo. Yeah. Cambo. I mean, you're a complete lump of shit next to Cambo. Oh, my God. Cambo is the greatest. Cambo. I mean, he burps like a six-year-old girl, but he, he does. is so great. But having said that, he has a certain je ne sais quoi. Oh, he has a certain, Cambo, say what? <laughs> Boom, fuck, <laughs> <laughs> nice work on the boom fucker longer earlier, by the way, when the explosion huh? happened. Boom fucker longer! <laughs> you know what's the hardest thing about recording with Cambo is to not accidentally start impersonating Cambo, don't you reckon? I know. I like I like it when I said boom fucker longer last week and he just jumped in and went, hey, that's my line. Yeah. Shit in the bucket. And he tried to steal my line. Back. Well, rightly so. Rightly so. He's a lovely man. He's a brilliant man. But I, yeah, whenever I'm around him, I kind of just want to impersonate him a little bit. Because <laughs> well, he's got such a strong way of speaking that's just entirely him. Well, he is a very unique and uh, precious snowflake. Oh, I wouldn't call him a snowflake. Oh, well, he's a he's, day walker. He, he's a unique bird. <laughs> so, Barney. Yes, Tara. Tommy's shut. Tommy Tommy. No, that's a French laugh, isn't it? <laughs> 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 My children need goodwill wine. <laughs> oh, Dave would like that. Leave it in. Goodwill wine. Check it out. Yeah, we're still rolling. Okay, good. Don't you hate it when you accidentally get your dress tucked into your underpants? <laughs> I, no, I love that when it happens to me. Yeah, good. I don't, I don't like it. These events were captured on the CCTV. CC, no, that was right. Yeah, it was actually, you know, last time you went CCCTV. I know, I, I got the right amount of Cs. Uh, yeah, and then, and then you were like, it must be wrong. Isn't it 10 CCs is the right amount? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's just enough spam. His events... Wow. We could do that forever. Uh, <laughs> we should. It granted him the. Well, Tara. <clears throat> you fucking cunt. Oh, fuck you. No, like, fuck what, you. Who, are, who are you? Come on, who am I? I'm Barney Black. You know who I'm I am? I'm classy and I talk I... about fogs. Well, we... Tara is so terrible and everyone hates him. Yeah, well, what you said, okay? <laughs> you trash. <laughs> hey, fucking trash panda. Just know your place. Oh, Arcy McClassy. That's right. So, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you slur my name that you're kind of halfway uh, so, fucked? Uh, well, hey, Barney. Good guy, also kind of a dick. $10? Get out of here. I'll do it for five. Well, I'm sure you do it for quite a lot less. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you first. So, Tara, this granted him the kind of power and influence that helped him so, Tara, this granted him the kind of power and influence that helped make him a strong suspect. He was facing the prospect of deport. He was fra- 
freezing. He was freezing the prospect of deep frost. Freezing the prospect of kicking your ass, Tara. Oh, uh, yeah, like you fucking could if you tried. Such conduct. I'd like to change the horn in my car to a goose quack. Oh, okay. Can you do an a angry goose quack? Goose quack. They really ain't. They can. They can fuck your shit let me, up. Let me try it. Do it. Man, I'd get out of the fuck away of that. Oh, I'd, I'd run a mile from that. I'd get the fuck out of the way of that. Swans are also quite violent. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.